I'm not sure whether it surprised me or whether I just seem to have have a different uh, memory of things that I've read from you or heard from you, because you you mentioned before I think uh, that you don't trade the markets necessarily exactly the same way, and um, I thought that I had heard previously from you that it's a really good idea to trade all markets equal, so to speak. Can you talk to me? Because this is another discussion we, we've had, not necessarily because we disagree, but but there's always this thing about, you know, when you build, say, a trend-following portfolio, and in our case, we trade all markets equal, even though we know that none of them is going to be optimal. I mean, we could find models that or speeds or parameters that are better for, for certain markets. Of course, we could. We still choose to trade them equal. Talk to us a little bit about that conundrum and, and why you've chosen to go your way uh, and, 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 and so on and so, f- so forth. And how, because we have both a lot of institutional and private investors listening to us, but we also have a lot of people who are trying to design their own systems. And this is one of the things that they will definitely be, be wondering about what, what should they do. Yeah, so I'll probably start in a more abstract sense than home in on what I actually do with my own system. So um, I think human beings um, have a real tendency to to love stories and to to think, oh, actually, every market is different, um, and um, every market should be treated differently, um, and that seems logical, right? There's no. It seems bizarre in, in a way that Aussie dollar should be treated the same as pork bellies, um, and I think um, another reason for that is that, that a lot of the institutional memory of people in the industry comes out of pit trading. Um, where the guy who was in the in the pork bellies pit um, would be nowhere near the Aussie dollar pit, uh, may even be on a different exchange, um, and you know he wouldn't presume to think that he could be kind of removed from the pork belly pit and then go and trade Aussie dollar in exactly the same way that he'd been trading um, pork bellies. Um, that that seems logical to human beings. That just seems like common sense. Um, now to address this um, in uh, the book I wrote recently. Um, I, I said, okay, that's the story, but what's the evidence for it? Um, and I did a, a plot and I said, right, for um, a, a particular speed of a moving average crossover, what is the sharp ratio across, you know, 40 different futures markets across, including port values, including Aussie dollar. Uh, and there's this wonderful compelling graph and, on, on, and it shows a, a strong negative sharp ratio for, I think the worst market is the Swiss stock market index. Uh, and at the other extreme, um, I think it's something like um, Italian bonds, um, interestingly, given what's happened recently, um, that have the, the very strong positive performance. Um, and uh, I say, oh, wow, it looks like common sense is correct. And that they, this for this particular, we should actually be making a decision here that only in some markets should we be using this momentum filter because there's a lot of markets clearly where it does very badly. But then I say, well, now let's add uh, an extra thing to this graph which is the concept of statistical significance. So rather than just showing the, the mid-estimate for the, the Sharpe ratio for a given market, I put around that um, error bars, um, which give us an idea of um, the, the sort of confidence interval that we can have. Um, and we can basically say, yep, we can be 95% confident that the Sharpe ratio, which we know the average number for, we can be 95% confident it's somewhere between you know, this lower estimate and this upper estimate. And when you add the error bars to this this wonderful clear plot showing negative to positive sharp ratios, what you see is that none of those sharp ratio differences are significant. 
because all the arrow bars overlap massively. Um, so there's actually about a 30% chance that the Swiss stock market index could be just as good, if not better, than the Korean three-year bond, even though they're at the opposite ends of this this plot. Sorry, the Italian 10-year bond, I think I said earlier. Um, so, you know, doing that kind of exercise really rams home to you that the human intuition that, that all markets are different um, is not really the case. Um, and, and, and whenever anyone finds evidence for it in a backtest, they probably haven't done this exercise of checking to see if the evidence is actually statistically significant. So my starting point is normally that the returns from a given system, or a given market, whatever it is we're, we're trying to fit across or optimize across are the same. The sharp ratios are the same in expectation. Um, but here's the caveat, and I think there's a bit of confusion about what I said earlier. This is on a pre-cost basis. So on a pre-cost basis, I believe that you know momentum on 10-year bonds in Italy is the same as momentum on the Swiss stock market index. I've got no evidence to suggest otherwise. Therefore, I know I whip out my trusty Occam's razor and say that the simplest thing is true. You know, I can't I can't distinguish my hypothesis. You know, blah blah blah. Um, I'm going to treat these markets the same, but they don't have the same costs, um, and that that means that although in principle you may think that a, a faster system um, should be um, traded with all markets, in practice that fast system is just going to be too expensive to trade for something like euro dollar. So that's the diff the only difference between the again it's the difference in theory and practice. In theory, I'd probably have all my markets trading exactly the same. In practice, um, there, are, there are some markets where faster systems are just too expensive and therefore I have to reduce or even eliminate uh, those from those markets. But um, generally speaking, um, I mean, I, I have seen some patterns that look convincing, like, for example, if you look at momentum and carry across the, the US bond curve going up from two years to 30 years, it does look like there's a pattern there. It looks like momentum is better at the short end and carry at the long end. But, you know, the, statistically, the evidence is, is weak enough that the, my preference is to keep things simple, um, keep things robust, treat everything the same before costs, and then, and then bring costs into the equation. Shame that uh, Jerry isn't here this week. He would have loved exactly that point. Um, you know, we're talking about sample size a lot. And, you know, when we say that at the end of the day, markets are... Markets are the prices are the result of human behavior, human humans trading with each other, or humans programming systems that will trade automatically. But you know, it has a human origin, and kind of like you should see it reflected in the same way in hogs or pork bellies, which no longer exist, as you would in the Aussie dollar. So therefore, let's just design systems that will treat them all in the same way. And the the, the positive thing about that is is that you get larger sample size if you're doing you know, say a 200 day breakout in the same way across all markets, say you're trading 80 or 100 markets, then that gives you, it simply produces a larger statistical body of evidence that you can work with and therefore larger and better statistical significance to come to a conclusion as to whether your system was worth trading or not. Now, if you have one market that's not trading the 200 day breakout, it's trading the 198 day breakout, the 199 day breakout, even though that's super, super close, technically you could say, well, 
I can no longer include that in my sample because it's really trading a different thing. So sample size reduces and my the quality assessment that I can make of that system is no longer probably as good. Now, the counter argument I have with that, and, and I think that's true first off, but one of the, the counter arguments that I could make is say, well, let's, tr let, let's test the portfolio and the, on the 199 day breakout and you will get the same sample size probably or very close to the 200 day breakout portfolio and it will show you results that are very similar, maybe identical even, right? Then we do the same on the 190, on the 180, on the blah, 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 all the other breakout type of levels and we would find that they're all good systems. So if they're all good systems and we would all trade them, why not diversify across those systems, which is kind of like what we're doing anyway, right? And then you could kind of like create a bridge into helping you to say, okay, some markets I'm trading with a 150-day breakout and some other markets I'm trading with a 250-day breakout, maybe also in light of the costs which you have just mentioned, um, Robert, which which I think are a, that, that is a that is a practical truth, that is a factor, that some of the markets are just more expensive to trade than others. Um, so you can probably get away with that. And, you know, we're still not at the point where I think we have a, a final answer on that. And probably, as, as usual, there there isn't the one answer. And there's many different perspectives on that. And people have to pick and choose what they feel comfortable with. Yeah, I think we're very much on the same page. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of, of, you know, including as many things in your portfolio as you can, whether it be instruments, as we discussed at length, or, you know, diversifying across styles or and, and then within styles across time frames um absolutely um you know the 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 point about uh, sample size is extremely important because um you know we are limited in how much data we have um we're trading quite slowly so we you know it's not we're not going to get a huge benefit by um necessarily even getting 10 years more data to add to our 40 year backtest um, but the difference between able to backtest with just one market worth of data and being able to backtest with 100 markets worth of data, um, you know, so as a rule of thumb, statistical significance increases with the square root of the number of things you've got, whether it be years of data or ma markets. So, you know, you can have 10 times more data if you've got 100, um, sorry, you can have 10 times more statistical significance if you've got 100 markets rather than if you've got one. And that's just, you know, a, a huge, a huge difference. Um, I mean, there's a slight conundrum here, which I kind of alluded to earlier, which is that you want to diversify across instruments, you want to diversify across time frames, but you can't necessarily do both in the way that you'd like to because of the cost issue. Um, so, you know, if I want to trade fast, um, I have to do so in a place where I've got less diversification across instruments because there are a few instruments I can trade fast. Um, so, you know, there's actually an interesting problem in in terms of how you deal with with those do you do you, do you kind of with those two problems um you know you can you've got to say well either i don't trade fast at all which is reasonably valid and somebody like winton i guess that's the route they've gone down um or you say right i'm, I'm going to trade trade fast but i know that i've got a limited set of instruments to do so um and therefore in that space at least i'm, I'm giving up some of the instrument diversification that i can keep at the slower the slower end where you know, we're talking about 200-day moving averages. You know, pretty much everything can be traded with a 200-day moving average. Um, but if we're talking about, you know, like a, a five-day breakout system, then you know, you you probably can't trade that with with something like Eurodollar because it'll just be too expensive. Yeah. No. Very interesting um, challenge.